Amen. Thank you, Paul. Imagine someone very close to you, maybe a small child, a grandma, a dear friend, is, is seriously injured, like a deep gash, a nasty wound, and they go into the hospital, and, and the nurses and doctors immediately rush to take care of them, attend to them. And as you're watching, you're shocked at what you see. The nurses and doctors aren't wearing gloves. In fact, they haven't washed their hands. And as they start tending to your loved one, you realize that they're about to use a contaminated needle and dirty medical tools and very clearly dirty bandages. Now, how would you react in this scenario? Well, you know, who, who am I to judge what they're doing? That's their perspective. No! We would immediately intervene. We would say, stop, stop, stop this! Why? Well... We love them, we care about them, we want them to do well. But, but what's the matter? Well, the issue is, is that although the doctors and nurses are well-educated, they have good intentions, and they mean well, they're about to cause more harm. Why? Because they're not paying attention to the reality of germs and infections. And so they're about to make the problem worse. Well, there may be an imperfect parallel here between medicine and germ theory and Christianity and sin. Just as if you're going to understand anything about medicine, if you, if you want to uh, progress in the field, you need to understand the danger of germs. You need to realize the problem you're trying to solve. Well, if you're going to understand Christianity, then you must understand the danger and problem of sin, or you will never understand it. So if, if you're here today and you're a skeptic, you're not a Christian, and you want to understand Christianity, then you must understand the danger of sin, from the Christian perspective at least. And if you're a believer, and you want to grow in your faith, then we must understand the danger of sin. We all must. And that is where God's Word confronts us today. It doesn't necessarily give us a textbook definition, but in the story of Naboth's vineyard and Ahab and Jezebel, it gives us a picture a scene that shows us the devastating effects of sin and how sin is a powerfully corruptive force in our lives stemming from our hearts. The book of Kings, as it unfolds, is this, this grand history of the people of God. And as it's been unfolding, God's people are increasingly being undone by the power of sin in their lives. Long ago are the days of David, Imperfect, but a man after God's own heart. Or Solomon the wise, also a sinner, but he built the temple. No, now God's people are divided. You have Israel, or sometimes called Samaria in the north, and in the south, Judah, or what would later be called Judea. And the kings, who are supposed to be God's representatives on earth, continue to move further and further away from their God. And here in our story, we meet one of the worst kings of all, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. In fact, in previous chapters, we are told that Ahab, at least to this point in Israel's history, had done more evil than anyone else before him. And as Ahab dives deeper into the ocean of sin in this story, we see how powerfully corrupting sin can be. 
And that, that brings us to our first point, thinking of verses 1 through 4. We see that sin corrupts our desires. That is, sin disorders the things we love so that they are either out of place or out of proportion. We see sin corrupts our desires. It starts off innocently enough. Ahab has returned to one of his homes, one of his palaces, and, and he sees a rather nice-looking vineyard. Well, that'd be great for gardening. And so in verse 2, he asks if he, can, if he can buy it or trade for it with Naboth. Nothing wrong with that. No harm done. But Naboth says no. This vineyard has been in his family for generations, and, and it would be against God's law for him to sell it. You see, land in the Old Testament is incredibly precious because land is a symbol, it's a sign of God's blessing. It is God who has chosen the Israelites. It is God who brought them out of slavery and redeemed them and given them, graciously given them, this land. And so in the book of Leviticus, God says, you are not to sell your land unless you're destitute, unless you're in need. And if you do, it shouldn't be permanent. It can be redeemed. So, so Naboth is free to say no. He's under no compulsion. And he's in the right. He's absolutely right to reject the offer. But Ahab can't take the rejection. Ahab doesn't just, just, just doesn't want a vineyard. It'd be nice. He, he needs this vineyard. Now, he deserves this vineyard. It's not his, but it should be. And here is where Ahab falls into sin. More specifically, he covets. Now, this isn't a word we hear too much anymore in our culture. And so maybe you're wondering, well, what does that even really mean? Is it really that big of a deal? Is you being a bit dramatic? Well, maybe you'll remember that when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments in Exodus, that in the Tenth Commandment, God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, we'd be going on the wrong track if we try to create a list of, okay, well, what can we not covet and what can we? No, the, the issue here is what is at the heart of what it means to covet? How do we understand this? Well, one way we can faithfully understand coveting as coveting is an evil, selfish, an inward desire to have what rightfully belongs to someone else. Or, and put another way, coveting is a discontented heart which seeks ultimate satisfaction in something else other than God. Coveting says God isn't enough. See, Ahab knew of God. Ahab knew of many of the same stories we know today. Noah, Abraham, Moses, even David. And Ahab says, God isn't enough. You know what would really satisfy me? A vineyard. And, and so coveting is intimately intertwined with greed, with envy, and idolatry. Well, is it really that big of a deal, though? What's really the problem? Well, Jesus thinks it's a big deal. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, For from within the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
coveting. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is ever earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So coveting itself is an evil desire. that It it devalues God, dethrones him, degods him. It inevitably leads to more evil. It's hard to contain and causing destruction, turning people against each other. And it provokes the wrath of God. Even though God is slow to anger, God gets angry with coveting. And so back to our story here, Ahab begins to covet Naboth's vineyard. He must have it. Like, like the dog when it stares at you when you're eating dinner. The dog yearns for your food. Well, so Ahab must have Naboth's vineyard. He's fixed on it. He won't take no for an answer. Look at verse 4. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So he lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. He's miserable. Maybe that's one quick thing to note. Coveting sin will inevitably make us miserable. Maybe not immediately, but it brings misery. Because Ahab can't have Naboth's vineyard. And it might be easy for us to brush this off. I'm not a king. Don't live in the Middle East. Don't live near Niagara. Not near any vineyards. No problem here. But not so fast. Because I wonder if we probe our own hearts, how often we may find we covet what belongs to someone else. Oh, if I only had her body. Why, why did she get that promotion? I, I should have got that promotion. Oh, that's a nice kitchen. Why, why can't we have a kitchen like that? I need a kitchen like that. I want a kitchen like that. Well, why does everyone love him so much? He's not very special. <laughs> Pay some attention to me. Do you see his investment portfolio? <laughs> I will do anything to have investments like that. I mean, Dad, if I have this phone, I'll be truly happy. I won't bother you anymore. I just, I need the phone. Everyone has the phone. No, whether it's money, prestige, education, sex, kids, or even if you find yourself in a pandemic, toilet paper, the human heart can covet just about anything. And there we come much closer to the heart of Ahab than we care to admit. And if you like application, it's in these early moments when these desires begin to sprout up in our heart that we must kill them. Imagine you're in the shower or bath and you see a huge spider. Now, in this moment, there are two types of sane people. The first type is out of the the bathroom so fast they are flying away. And the second type squashes it, kills it. No nonsense. But can you imagine someone who would cuddle up with the spider and bathe with it? Well, we must have the same reaction to our sin. 
When, when these twisted desires begin to rise in our hearts, we must either flee or kill them. Or sin will be very happy to come in and kill our friendships, our workplaces, our marriages, our souls. Well, how do I do that? Well, it can be lots of different ways. And so a short list maybe is sometimes that just means turning off the computer, throwing the phone on the sofa and going outside for a walk. Maybe it means coming home to the kids and playing with them. Dropping to your knees and just saying, Lord, help me. I don't know what to do. If you, if you love writing lists, maybe you write a list of all the ways God is faithful and provides, meets your needs. And all of us must learn to preach the gospel to our own hearts every day as we are forgetful creatures. But Ahab doesn't do any of this. Ahab gives us the example, if you like visuals, of what happens when you don't. Ahab does not kill his sin. He lets it grow and fester and multiply. And this brings us to our second point. Sin corrupts our relationships. It means that, that sin perverts our relationships so that they become ugly, destructive, burdensome. Sin corrupts our relationships. So, so here we have Ahab sulking at home. And in verse 5, in walks his wife Jezebel. Now, now Jezebel's the kind of woman who should make you shiver when she enters a room because she is ruthless. She's a pagan. And in previous chapters in the book of Kings, she is a murderer. She will not bat an eye at, at killing a prophet. And, and so Jezebel is wicked, but she's also an amazingly intelligent and resourceful woman. And she asks Ahab, what's wrong with you? Why, why are you in bed? And Ahab tells her he didn't get his vineyard. And, and Jezebel says, this, this is unacceptable. No, no king should be treated this way. You do not tell a king no. And so she is going to have this taken care of, like a mafia mobster. So she comes up with this scheme to whack Naboth. He's a threat. He has defied the power of the king. And so he must be taken out. And he, is, he has what they want. He's the obstacle in their way. So she, she calls up the local elders and officials and, and plans a party and arranges the details of Naboth's murder. But if we pause here for a moment, do you see how perverse this is? Here we have a king and a queen, imperfect, but, but God has commissioned them. You are to protect your people. That is one of the duties of government. You are to protect the people. And here they are planning the murder of one of their own subjects, one of their own citizens, because they want a vineyard? Rather than upholding righteousness and justice or law and order, they're using their own power for their ill-gotten gain. See, sin has corrupted their desires, and these desires begin to twist the relationships of a nation. And so if left unchecked, even a, a small sin, a hidden sin like coveting, can begin to rot and decay a nation of any size. Alongside this, remember, this is supposed to be the people of God. God's covenant people from whom the Messiah will come. But, but now, sin reigns in their hearts. 
Because they're bored with God, he can't really give me what I want. They're reduced to lying, cheating, and plotting the murder of each other just to get what they want. And look how sin has terribly corrupted the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, God has designed marriage to display his love and for the good of mankind. But rather than allies of good, Ahab and Jezebel are now partners in evil, full of envy and coveting, not joy and love. The two can't go together. So sin has corrupted their marriage, so it has become ugly. Like how rust will, will damage and eventually destroy any car. So sin will wreak havoc in all our relationships if left unchecked. It, sin turns what was meant for good into evil. It turns husbands against wives, children against parents, brother against brother, sister against sister, rich against the poor, the poor against rich. It will destroy every relationship, including the most important relationship of all, our relationship with God. Unless we kill sin early, it will be very happy to corrupt and destroy our relationships. And, and this brings us to our third point. Sin corrupts the truth. We see that sin loves to, to twist and distort the truth so that no one knows the truth it's happy if people just stop caring to know about the truth. Sin corrupts the truth. So here Jezebel has, has come up with a, the seemingly perfect plan. Have a party, a big party with lots of people, lots of witnesses. And I now will make it holy, will honor God, a nice feast, fasting beforehand. And even though a pagan Jezebel knew in order to be legitimate, Deuteronomy says you need at least two witnesses to make accusations stand. So, well, we have money. We can easily afford two witnesses. Done. And the law calls for death in this case. How convenient. How perfect. It'll be by the book. Lawful. Orderly. Quick and clean. Maybe you can picture this, this grand feast. People are wearing colorful clothes, um, the smell of the fire, that, that crackle, maybe a lamb roast, and people talking, probably very good wine. And, and maybe these two scoundrels, maybe they knew Naboth before, maybe they didn't. But as the evening goes on, they sit in front of him and probably make some small chat, maybe get him laughing. And Naboth has no idea what is coming. And so later on in the evening, one of the men jumps up and says, Naboth, he's, he's cursed both God and the king. And the second jumps up, yeah, what he says is true. I heard him, I heard him. Blasphemer, traitor. And the party turns into a mob. Men who, some of the men would have known Naboth for years. And they drag him outside the city. And they pick their stones. And Naboth, is murdered. But do you notice in the story, no one that we're told of questions Jezebel. No one stands up for Naboth. It seems that no one dares to question what's going on here. In fact, all these verses, 8 through 16, there's a chilling casualness to it all. 
No one involved seemed interested in the truth, or, or at least they, they weren't brave enough to ask about it. Maybe it would maybe be better if we didn't know. Safer that way. And the truth is just swept aside in the interest of selfish gain or perhaps just self-preservation. And sin loves this. Because when sins like coveting and envy can twist the, get us to twist the truth just so we can get what we really want, it won't be long before people forget about God, don't need him. And when we stop caring about God, it will not be long before people turn on each other. In a truth-free world, me is all that matters. In a truth-free world, I can finally live for the desires of my heart and no one can tell me no. In a truth-free world, as we see, might makes right. Do you have the power? Better get the power if you don't. And you know what we're left with? Vanity and death, decay. Naboth is killed. The liars, these scoundrels, they get their pay. Get to go home. And Ahab, the end of the story here, gets his garden. The bad guys win. And we might be thinking, well, and if I look in my own heart, I struggle with coveting. I envy what other people have. I, maybe not as bad, maybe, but I can see the effects of sin in my life, how it ravages things. In fact, if left to our own devices, if God just let us have what we wanted, our lives would be ravaged in all sorts of ways more than we can imagine. And we too would be left with vanity, decay, death, and the judgment of God. Wow. This is rather depressing. Dark. After all, the, the bad guys win at the end of the story. It, it seems a bit hopeless. Ah, but there is hope. There's actually a small seed of hope in Naboth himself, the innocent victim. You see, many years after Naboth, another innocent man would be framed for blasphemy and treason. False witnesses would come forward and accuse him publicly. And he would be taken outside his city. But unlike Naboth, Jesus Christ was crucified. And unlike Naboth, Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. Unlike Naboth, Jesus Christ willingly laid his life down for sinners like you and me out of his great love and grace. And on the cross, Jesus bears the wrath of God for our sins like coveting in our place. And where, where sin wishes to destroy the truth, Christ shows us he is the truth. Whereas sin destroys our relationships, Jesus Christ brings us a new relationship with God. He reconciles us to God and helps adopt us. And so now that we can call God our Father. And whereas sin and coveting disorders our desires, so we're always craving for more. We're always looking in the wrong places. Well, in Christ, 
We have finally found that thing, that person who can finally, truly satisfy us forever. Who can finally bring us true contentment, whom we can enjoy and never grow tired of. And that is the good news that we need to hear and we need to believe. Because remembering this good news helps us to fight our sin. It dispels the lies, the lies of our hearts, of this world, of the devil. It reminds us that we belong to God and he is the one who can truly satisfy our deepest desires. And from now on, through his work, Jesus' work, not our own, sin has lost its power over us. Sin is present. We have to struggle with it. But it no longer reigns. Christ reigns and his Holy Spirit lives in us. And maybe you're not a Christian. And you're thinking, well, what can I do? What, what, what hope is there for me? You're talking about Christians. Well, Jesus Christ says to you, friend, that there is no hope for yourself in yourself. There's no hope for you in this world. But there is the greatest and surest hope in him, in Jesus. And he calls you to repent. That just means to turn from your sinful unbelief and embrace him in simple faith. And it doesn't matter how you look or where you've come from or what you've done. He will take all your sin, your guilt, your restlessness upon himself. And he will give to you all he has. Forgiveness, true hope, and all-satisfying eternal life. So come to him in faith. Do not delay. Look, all of us, friends, look to Christ and be amazed at his beauty and glory. Believe him and worship him. For he is the one who made us for himself. And we will be restless until we rest in him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can hear your word, that we can worship you today. Lord, I pray, if we have heard your truth today, that we would not forget it, that, that we would meditate upon it and hold to what is true. If there's been any falsehood spoken today, Lord, may we discard it. Don't give it the time of day. But Lord, pursue our hearts. Teach us to find you all satisfying. Teach us to see your glory and beauty and holiness. That you are the one who can truly satisfy us. And Lord, if there's an offensive way in us, forgive us. Teach us your ways. Help us, Lord, to look to Jesus when we feel like we can't. We pray this in his name. Amen.